Welcome to the Continued Learning Podcast. My name is Dr. Fawn Carson, and I'm Senior Managing Editor at OccupationalTherapy.com. Today's podcast features our host, Dr. Dennis Cleary, discussing Continued Learning Podcast, Fall Prevention and Social Determinants of Health Implications for Practice, with our guest, Dr. Lisa Juckett. Thanks for listening. Hello, everyone, and welcome to our podcast. My name is Dennis Clary. I'm a senior researcher and assistant professor at Cincinnati Children's Hospital Medical Center in beautiful Cincinnati, Ohio. And we are fortunate to be joined today by Dr. Lisa Juckett from the Ohio State University in beautiful, sunny Columbus, Ohio. And Dr. Juckett's going to talk to us today about fall prevention and social determinants of health implications for practice. Welcome, Lisa. Thanks for being with us. Can you just tell us a little bit about yourself and how you became interested in this topic? Certainly. And uh, first, I, I do have to thank you, Dennis, for the invitation to do this. And, and thank you to OccupationalTherapy.com for allowing me to be here. And it is sunny in Columbus, Ohio, even though you, you all can't see it here today. Um, but uh, I'm Lisa Jacket, assistant professor at The Ohio State University in the Division of Occupational Therapy. Um, I, however, started out my OT career as a clinician working primarily in inpatient rehabilitation, but also spent some time doing some proteum or uh, contingent work at a, a skilled nursing facility also here in Columbus, Ohio. Um, and about five years after practicing, I made the leap uh, kind of back into academia. I wanted to explore some more research questions um, and ended up getting a PhD in social work. Um, not, not because I, I'll say that I wasn't necessarily sick of the medical model, but um, working in practice for five years, I wanted to get a different perspective as to what are those complex, larger level factors, uh, the social work um, field might call those the macro level factors that influence the extent to which adults and older adults can receive high quality care. So uh, that was the reason I headed back into the social work field. Um, very glad that I did and uh, has, has led me down to this research path of, of fall prevention, looking at social determinants of health. So some of the things that maybe we, we sometimes think about in OT, but perhaps not as um, fully as we should. Gotcha. And your, your PhD was sort of in translation uh, of knowledge, right? Yes. Um, so one of the added draws into the field of social work was um, that I was mentored very well by an expert in the field of implementation science. Um, and so implementation science um, is the study of the systematic process of moving evidence-based findings into routine practice or routine care. Um, and so I, I won't be talking too much about that today, but much of what I, I will be talking about certainly can relate to the field of implementation science in that much of what we read in the literature, we don't want to just live alone in the literature or in journal articles or at professional conferences. We want it to actually make an impact into the lives of the patients that we, or the clients that we see. So um, I'll, I'll try to sprinkle in a, a couple implications for implementation science as we talk here. But the majority of what um, I, I've always been passionate about is improving the health and quality of life of older adult populations. Wonderful. So when it comes to their quality of life, I know from my own personal experience, um, falls for my parents who both have, have passed away, um, were really a huge uh, impact on their, not just quality of life, but even longevity of life. So can you talk a little bit about um, falls with older uh, older adults and kind of how you got interested in it and, and some of the implications uh, that that has for our society and obviously for them individually as well? Sure, sure. Um, and, you know, first, I, I know that we were kidding when we initially said this, Dennis, um, but, you know, in terms of older adults in the geriatric population, 
uh, I get it. It's not everybody's cup of tea. It's not the most exciting um, group or field or area. And that's, you know, I've heard different reasons anecdotally as to why that is, why there's a lack of interest in, in aging research and aging care, aging studies. Um, and, you know, one, one excuse, one reason I've heard is just that, you know, older adults, as we age, we don't seem to make um, recoveries quite as quickly as we did when we were younger. Uh, and so the, the gratification or the instant gratification of seeing somebody make progress in, in rehab, um, it, it, that progress, if it does happen, it's at a much slower rate. And so um, I, I get that there might not be the excitement that comes with working in you know, neuro rehab or pediatric populations, but it's certainly... This is a, an understudied um, and in some cases undervalued population uh, in our in our culture in particular. And um, but it is a population that I've always cared about since I was a, a high schooler um, volunteering in assisted living facilities, as nerdy as that sounds. Um, but just being really drawn to these individuals who deserve to live their later years, which as much dignity and independence as possible. Um, but and so when we think about falls, as you said, Dennis, everybody with your own parents, I like to think that everybody has a falls story. Um, if it hasn't happened to them themselves, then, you know, they, they have a family member or a loved one uh, or someone on the periphery that has experienced a fall or perhaps a fall-related injury. And, and that, um, that subjective or that observation that I have is supported by a lot of research. We see that on average, at least current numbers estimate that there are about 52 million older adults in the United States currently. And of those 52 million, we're looking at about 36 million annual falls. Certainly, that could be you know one individual falling multiple times, but those falls lead to about 8 million fall-related injuries per year, and that costs the healthcare system upwards of about 50 billion dollars, uh, um, which is quite a bit of money. And you know, in some cases, depending on who you talk to, uh, money makes the world go round. And when we think about healthcare expenditures and how we can improve just the quality of care provided to, to all populations, we do have to think about costs and ways to kind of um, minimize costs on the healthcare system itself. And fall prevention could be one way to, to really do that. But we've been singing this song for a long time without really moving the needle on fall prevention for many reasons. And I'll talk about those um, momentarily. But the other piece of, of information that I do want to bring up is that, um, you know, we hear about the baby boomer population. We, we hear that by 2030, uh, the number of older adults is going to grow exponentially, whereas right now we're about 52 million. By 2030, we'll hit about 73 million older adults. And so ultimately, that's more individuals who are, again, at, at, at greater likelihood of falling as we age. We increase our likelihood of falling, certainly. And so that's going to um, you know, likely lead to more falls. I'd like to say it won't if we implement the right practices um, and, and approaches. But um, if we can learn from history, we've not done a great job of really trying to, to move, of really moving the needle on fall prevention. So ultimately, I, I do think that, that fall-related injuries um, will increase as the older adult population increases as well. So you're saying it's a growth industry, but we should do something to try to prevent the growth in falls with the increase in our uh, aging population. So you mentioned age. Can you talk about some other uh, common risk factors for falls? Certainly. Um, and so, yes, age, as we 
as we get older, the older you are, you do see um, not just falls, but fall-related injuries tends to, to increase exponentially. Um, and with age, we also have changes in just physiologically what happens to us uh, in all of our different uh, systems. And so when we when we age, we see changes in, in our postural stability, uh, as well as our, our sensory systems, muscle activation, as well as our, our visual system as well, and just related to like, thinking about the connectedness of our muscular system, our sensory systems, uh, and just how those interplay and interconnect and that increases the likelihood of, of falling as we age. Um, we see plenty of older adults, and maybe they're on particular medications, or maybe we see older adults that are at risk for dehydration and experience then orthostatic hypotension. And so any sudden or even gradual changes in positions, so for instance, moving from a, um, a, a laying position to a seated position or standing up, quote-unquote, too quickly, uh, we might see sometimes those uh, side effects of orthostatic hypotension um, kick in, low blood pressure drops, and we might see um, increases in, in dizziness, uh, episodes of syncope that can then lead to, um, to falls themselves. In terms of orthostatic hypotension particularly, so is there a different technique we can work with uh, adults as they're maybe getting out of bed? Anything we do to maybe reduce the, the uh, risk of a fall at that point or no? Yeah, sure. So um, a couple of the more evidence-informed strategies to address in particular orthostatic hypotension. Um, you know, certainly with older adults, we've got this increased risk of comorbidity. So multiple conditions, uh, multiple chronic conditions that often require um, prescribed medications to help manage those. Um, but it, it's one of those evidence-informed or evidence-based strategies is to really, as OTs, consult as much as we're able to with physicians, prescribing physicians and pharmacists to really look at the medications that um, our older clients are, are taking to make sure that they're needed and to make sure that they're not interacting in a way that does influence blood pressure or, or lead to, to dizziness and syncope. And certainly, you know, the, the nitty gritty details of, of prescribing medications, those fall outside the scope of occupational therapy, but we can certainly collaborate with our, our pharmacy and physician partners to, to think through, okay, um, to what extent are all these medications actually meeting the needs of our medically of our of our older patients, um, and can anything be adjusted so that we don't see um, these these cases of orthostatic hypotension? But if that if that has nothing to do with with any issue, if medications all seem to be um, uh, appropriately prescribed, then we can certainly adapt behaviors or, or teach kind of modifications to something as simple as transitioning from laying in bed to getting up first thing, maybe in the morning or even in the middle of the of the night. Um, we know that individuals, especially individuals that might have um, experienced any element of incontinence, getting up in the middle of the night, um, that can pose uh, a risk for falls itself, moving in, in unlit or not as well-lit areas. And so um, helping our older clients transition from that side, laying to sideline to sit on the edge of the bed uh, in a way that is um, safe, although sometimes a little counterintuitive for older adult patients, um, that can be one option as well. So you talked about physiology, medications, other types of risk factors maybe that older adults might have that might lead to increased risk of falls. Sure, sure. And I, I know we talked a little bit about physiological changes and the sensory systems, and we think specifically about um, visual impairments. Uh, individuals who have poor visual acuity, um, poor depth perception, uh, light sensitivity, those individuals are at two times an increased risk of falling. Um, and so if we think back to 
doing your full OT evaluation or maybe even deploying or administering uh, specific uh, visual perceptual assessments. Those can be really valuable in quantifying the magnitude of someone's visual impairment, of course, in collaboration with any um, optometrists or ophthalmologists who might be uh, working with the same older adult patients that you are. Um, and then, of course, we've got conditions that affect the um, vestibular system, balance system, so patients with Parkinson's, patients with um, uh, tremors, ataxia, multiple sclerosis, other neurodegenerative disorders uh, are at increased likelihood as well. When we think about populations that are also on the rise, such as people living with dementia and those individuals with other mild cognitive impairments, um, those individuals also are two times more likely to experience not just a fall, but an injurious fall, as opposed to older adults without mild cognitive impairment. Um, and one thing that I'm going to talk about that I'm also passionate about, but and we'll get into that a little bit today as we, as we get into... Um, our case example here is that older adults who experience malnutrition are uh, eight times more likely. I bring that up just because I, I think that that proportion or that ratio is is, is wild um, and concerning, but eight times more likely to experience um, an injury related to a fall as opposed to those individuals who are well malnourished or who are, excuse me who are well nourished. So um, important to think about just this that that adage that food is medicine and the importance of making sure that our patients are not just well hydrated but also well nourished and collaborating with um, physicians speech language pathologists and of course our registered dietitian colleagues to make sure that those uh, nutrients finally earning CEUs is as easy and stress-free as listening to your favorite podcast just head over to occupationaltherapy.com and sign up to start earning the CEUs you need online You'll get unlimited access to hundreds of courses, including live webinars, on-demand videos, and text courses, and the audio courses you love for just $99 per year. And if you sign up today, you'll get 13 months of unlimited CEU access for the price of 12. This is an exclusive offer for our listeners, so don't wait. Go to occupationaltherapy.com and use promo code PODCAST and get 13 months for just $99. Join thousands of your colleagues who are already earning their CEUs online with OccupationalTherapy.com, an AOTA-approved provider of continuing education, and an NBCOT professional development provider. And don't forget to use promo code PODCAST at checkout to get your free bonus month. Once again, that's OccupationalTherapy.com, promo code PODCAST, P-O-D-C-A-S-T, to get started today. ...needs are, are being met. And even their social worker potentially i suppose if they and absolutely have, they're social if worker. they don't have access to good food and maybe we can get meals on wheels or something like that <clears throat> that in there for them as well great um so absolutely. one one other thing how about gender does that play a role in in terms of either risk for falls or severity of falls that's a great question um and uh the last statistic that i saw was that women are I believe about 40% more likely than men to fall. Um, we think of just about bone density and um, how that decreases over time, that women that are, um, depending on the literature that you read, more likely to experience fracture related to, to a fall itself. And so that would be considered that older um, white female population would be more of that higher risk group that would be at increased risk of experiencing, not, again, not just a fall, but an injury related to a fall as well. Gotcha. It kind of makes sense in terms of even the, like when you think of the the density of a, a bone, you know, for a, a man as opposed to a woman, maybe. I don't know. It's outside of my area of expertise. I shouldn't talk too much about it, I, I guess, in that sense. 
Um, so if you think about, um, you know, lots of falls and occupational therapists certainly have a, a strong role to, um, to help prevent falls or to at least minimize the risk of falls, what are some things that might be useful for an occupational therapist to have in their tool belt uh, that they're going to pull out for a, a, a client that they're seeing that is at risk for falls? Sure, sure. So, you know, first, the, the my, my go-to response is going to be to, to resort first to your different fall risk assessment tools just to kind of help, again, objectively measure or quantify the, the degree to which somebody is at risk for falling. So you've got the, the Berg balance test is one option. You've also got the uh, timed up and go. You've got the functional reach test. And so all of those can be really helpful tools to predict um, somebody's risk for falling, to, to flag somebody, so to speak, and to have that um, Which Which that one is number. your favorite? <laughs> I prefer the timed up and go, just because it is something that is fairly quick and easy with just a little bit of training, very minimal equipment that's required. Um, you can do it in ideally less than, than 20 seconds. Can you just um, describe it real quick? Sure, sure. So the timed the up tug. and go is the, the tug. The, the tug is... is we, we love to call it. Um, you have a patient that's seated in a, in a chair and then about uh, 10 meters away, sorry, 10 meters, three meters, 10 feet away, you've got um, the older adult, three meters, 10 feet. Right, Dr. Cleary? Correct. We, we've got, you've got somebody stand and you instruct them to uh, walk the three meters around some sort of object and then back into the chair and you time them during this entire process. You instruct them to walk at their normal pace. Uh, and while the cutoff criteria is going to escape me right now, I believe that for the older adult population, if it takes an older adult longer than 12 seconds to complete that, that walk from standing up from the chair, walking around the cone and back, then that would be considered uh, that person would be considered at risk for falling. Um, and so we'll, again, we'll definitely have links to the, the Berg and the timed up and go. There's they're readily available free assessments that are, as you said, are, are pretty quick and, and give you some good information. Certainly. Yes. Great. And can be done in many, um, the, the tug especially can be done really anywhere with, with minimal equipment, which is why I, it, it's feasibility is quite appealing mm -hmm. regardless of where you are clinic or community. Gotcha. So um, in terms of uh, other types of, of um, things that an occupational therapist can do to really look at the research and how we can prevent falls, what other kinds of stuff can we do? Sure. So um, there's about 2018, there was a great report that came out by Stevens and Lee, who um, I believe were uh, affiliated with the, the CDC. And so I'll say that it was a CDC report that came out that that indicated that home modifications when implemented by an occupational therapist saved several billions of dollars in um, fall-related healthcare expenditures. So home modifications certainly coupled with um, certain exercise-based programs or balance retraining programs. Um, you can probably do a quick Google search in your local community to find uh, maybe Tai Chi classes, for instance, balance retraining, matter of balance is another program, stepping on is another program that are evidence, all of which are evidence-based programs, meaning that they are supported by um, high quality, rigorous, rigorous randomized control trials, indicating that they lead to consistent improvements in fall-related outcomes uh, with older adult populations. And oftentimes these programs are put on in the state of Ohio. These programs are sponsored and led um, in part by 
uh, are at the state level are Ohio Department on Aging. At the local level, they're organized by uh, area agencies on aging. And several of these programs can be led by uh, a peer, and it's actually more beneficial to be led by a peer. So an older adult peer gets trained in these programs and helps to facilitate these balance retraining, these exercise programs with other older adults. And so from a... Um, social interaction, sociological perspective, you do get that peer-to-peer -peer interaction, um, which just kind of helps kind of even the playing field. You think about what it's like to go through a balance retraining program with somebody who has more in common with you than perhaps, you know, a healthcare professional who might not experience the same balance-related challenges as you are. That could be quite appealing to, to an older adult. Great. That might be a wonderful thing for a retired occupational therapist to do. Or maybe I'll do that in a few years when I retire. might be. I think that'd be great for you, Dr. Cleary. Yeah, expand your so uh, your skill set. Just continue to add to your own toolkit. But I, I do want to mention That's, one more I'm, thing along the lines. I'll just I'll just add one more thing because you you mentioned your own toolkits or, or toolkits that that folks um, have or can add to their toolkits, and and that would be the. Uh, CDC's Steady Toolkit, and I promise I do not work for the CDC, and this is not, I'm not paid to endorse this at all, <laughs> um, but the uh, the CDC has its uh, stopping elderly uh, falls, accidents, deaths, and injuries, um, so that's what that acronym stands for, and if you were to Google the Steady uh, algorithm. We'll, we'll put it, it in the handout that they'll have too as well. Lovely, lovely, that it'll, it provides you with more or less a decision tree to help lead you to potential interventions that could be appropriate depending on an older adult's fall risk factors. Gotcha. And then I've heard good things about the CAPABLE program as well. Yes. CAPABLE program came out of Johns Hopkins, um, and it's a very client-centered program developed by uh, Sarah Zanton, who is a nurse by training, but developed this um, community-based program for older adults who, who do have a hard time leaving their homes on a routine basis. I, I like to avoid the term homebound. Um, and so these are older adults who um, maybe are of lower income status, but uh, are individuals who likely have a need for home modifications, have a, have a need for some sort of behavioral interventions to help them employ more fall prevention practices. And so um, the most recent capable article that I read, uh, you've got... Um, uh, this capable program consists of about six visits, in-home visits from an occupational therapist, about four or so visits from a registered nurse, and then visits as needed from a um, handy worker, a, repair, a home repair expert, who can actually implement any type of basic home modifications to, to minimize the risk of falling. And uh, the key, the kicker, though, with this capable program is that these, uh, the the client goals, the fall-related goals, are very much client-centered. And so it's a collaborative effort across the uh, home repair expert, the nurse, and the occupational therapist to identify goals that are meaningful to the client, Very so very, uh, very occupation-based um, that can ultimately lead to improvements in uh, self-efficacy around falls or falls efficacy, as we, as we might refer to it as, as well as just general well-being um, and independence in ADLs yeah. and IADLs. Sure. And I just think of my, my own parents as we supported them as they got older. My dad had dementia. My mom was uh, his caretaker and just and then she had a fall. And so it you had someone that was a, had a, a, a fall risk to begin with. And my father, he used a, 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 a walker and then my mom ended up having to be on a walker as well. And just all the adaptations that we had to make to their house. And 
um, just something really smart that my mom did. I don't know if I've told you this story or not before, Lisa, but um, we lived uh, a block away from the fire department. And so my mom stopped by uh, when uh, dad was at, he was at a day program that the VA paid for. But anyway, um, stopped by the fire department and got their kitchen phone number um, for the fire department. So what she said was, and what she asked, and they said they would be happy to do it. If my dad fell and she couldn't get him up because um, she wouldn't, we, uh, her son, the occupational therapist, demanded that she not try to get him up on her own because, you know, one was enough. Uh, and uh, so she got their phone number and they said, if you call and we're not on a run, you know, instead of bringing, you know, the lights and siren and everything up and kind of, you know, making a big deal of it, they would, they have a little fire truck pickup. <laughs> they said they'd just bring a couple guys over and, and help uh, to get my dad up, which I just thought was kind of a brilliant little strategy of, um, you know, using the resources you have access to and, and kind of thinking that through. So that might be something you could, I don't know if it's going to be in, uh, you know, a, a reference list or not, but just a, a good story to, to share with community living folks that might have some resources they don't realize. So that's a really great point because um, there is being there's some work being done locally here in, in Columbus. I have a physical therapy colleague, uh, Katie Quatman Yates, um, who's done some really innovative work with um, the fire departments in uh, a part of Columbus, Upper Arlington, uh, where they've uh, partnered. Ohio State has partnered with this fire department in order to. Uh, assess and then address the fall risk needs of, of older residents in, in this one community of Columbus. And, and based on this partnership, they really have seen a nice decline in fall-related calls to the fire department, but much of that has to do with the community medicine, paramedicine program that they've deployed there. And so just having those community resources in place uh, has led to some nice improvements in the rate of falls, at least in that, in that one community. But it certainly serves as a nice encouraging sure. case example. Well, in, in other countries that are a little um, different in terms of how they provide medicine to their population, um, you'll send an occupational therapist to the house as part of an emergency department run. So literally, they just need to get somebody up and then assessed in terms of do they need to go to the, the hospital or not. And they're finding that it's actually really effective in decreasing, um, you know, future calls, but also... Uh, saving, you know, that $50 billion with a B you talked about, you know, if you don't, if someone doesn't actually have to go to the emergency department, but oftentimes the, when the paramedic is there, their kind of first assessment is going to bring to bring them to the emergency department. And especially, you know, with uh, all the demands on our healthcare system, um, there's a lot of things that other countries are, are doing. And of course, uh, on this podcast, there could be some folks from uh, outside of the United States listening to us, and they're like, of course, that's what we do. Why don't you do that? So we have lots <laughs> we that we can do. We should do that. Uh, that's right. So in terms of the evidence, though, because we always want to be about the evidence, um, why aren't we moving the, the needle on fall prevention, and why does it seem like it's uh, staying the same or getting worse? And as you said, with our um, boomers uh, retiring and getting older and more susceptible to falls, um, what are the things that are kind of getting in the way of that? Yeah, and that's the the million dollar, or I guess in this case, uh, the billion with a B. Billion would question. go with a billion dollar, yeah. <laughs> uh, that's the billion dollar question. And that is why if we have, you know, upwards of three decades worth of evidence to support things like, you know, 
exercise and balance retraining programs or home modifications or a combination of both home modifications and exercise and behavioral retraining, why aren't we seeing really great improvements in the rates of, of falls? That, that percentage of falls always hovers somewhere between, I shouldn't say always, but for the past several years has been hovering between 25% and 30% of older adults who experience a fall every year. So why aren't we seeing that, that proportion decline or improve? Um, and uh, certainly the implementation scientist, the translational scientist in me has to say, well, we're not moving evidence into practice, but, um, and we need more implementation research to help us do that. Um, and, but I, I would like to, to think also, um, and it's not just me saying this, we've got plenty of evidence that I'll talk about here to, to, to suggest this as well, is that, you know, these interventions that are deemed quote unquote effective for improving um, fall related outcomes, uh, those interventions are very much targeted at the individual level. So, you know, we're measuring if you're going to participate in this Tai Chi program, we're going to evaluate, um, you know, your your balance, your your falls efficacy, and that's it. Without really paying too much attention to those more kind of those external forces or factors that influence somebody's physiological status, their nutrition, their their cognitive status their general health status, their general well-being. And so um, those larger level factors are what part of this podcast is about today. Um, and that is those, those social determinants of health. And so those external forces or factors that really do impact the health of all of us, uh, at least in the United States, if not across the world, but um, the Healthy People 2030 um, does refer to, to five specific social determinants of health that I imagine so we'll what, talk about. What are what would those five social determinants of health be? Would you say? Sure. Um, so they and I. I guess I suppose I should list off or, or um, mutter off the actual definition of social determinants of health. Um, maybe we've heard this the term social determinants of health in some capacity without a clear definition, but these are the conditions and environments where people are born, where we live, where we work, play, worship, and age that have a major impact on our health, on our well-being, and our quality of life. And so when we think about OTs being the ones that help promote um, meaningful participation in activities where we're, you know, involved where we, where we live, work, play, where we do our occupations. Um, I think that these social determinants of health should always be on our radar. And I know for many of us, they are. Um, but uh, these, S these SDOHs, these social determinants are sometimes uh, couched more in the public health literature, but I I'm excited to see them infuse their way into, into occupational therapy as well. So those, those five that I mentioned, um, first, you've got education access and quality. Of course, you've got healthcare access and quality. You've got the uh, social context as well as your community context. So social community context, that, that's all one uh, determinant. Neighborhood and built environment as well as uh, economic stability. So those would be your, your five de determinants. Your five. So how would you define the built environment? The built environment. So, um, so that is, if we think about where we work, where we play, where we're born, where we worship, and what have you, that built environment would be those those structures around us. And so that could be those structures of our home. It could be the structures of where um, other key buildings, other key stores, key facilities are in relation to where our home is. And so that might be, um, you know, those, those built structures such as um, our ability to get inside of... Um, 
certain facilities or certain buildings, our ability to just access those buildings. So as I mentioned before, when we think about malnutrition and being uh, a major risk factor for falls, and we think about the neighborhood as well as the built environment and um, food access, if you don't live in an area that's got um, reliable access to a food store, maybe they're not open during the hours that you're available to access that food store, maybe geographically you're not able to easily access just based on the fact that you, you're not able to drive or you don't have access to community um, uh, transportation um, or you don't have access to somebody that is able to help you get from point A to point B, then those are all factors that pertain to that neighborhood and built environment. Um, and, you know, I... As, as Dr. Clear and I have talked about, I come from a, a position of privilege and, um, you know, if I had to, if I did not have my vehicle, would feel safe walking to my, my local grocery store. Um, but that safety is not guaranteed for all populations um, at all. And so when we think about uh, the neighborhood and the built environment, it is not just the, the structures around us, um, the roof over our heads, so to speak, or the, the stairs or the ramps to get in and out of a building, but it's also um, the, the, the safety of the environment that we're living, working, in, and existing in as well. Sure. And even, um, so I live in a, a, a place of privilege as well. And I, uh, so I have a, I'm in a, a homeowners association because, and the president of the homeowners association lives next to me and, uh, she's not an occupational therapist, so I can talk about her because she's probably not going to be listening to this, but, um, I live in Indiana, very soily sand. And so in a, in the tree lawn, there are these trees that are there that, um, just are bumping up the sidewalks left and right. And so several of my neighbors have cut the trees down and, um, you know, had had to shave off the sidewalk. So it was flat. It's still not flat. And she, of course, immediately sends out a, an email saying that it's required that you have to have a tree on your tree lawn or you're going to be, you know, taken to the HOA jail. Um, and so those are just examples of like when we really look at universal design so that we create systems that are accessible for everyone physically, it's better for everybody, not just someone at risk for falls. And kind of you talked about the other four factors um, as well is, you know, how do we set society up so that people have access to the types of, of services and the types of products that they need to be able to, to live their lives? Right. Just one more point to that, just, you know, thinking about statistics and, and the neighborhood and the built environment, we do see that, you know, along the lines of your point about sidewalks, that when we have older adults who do experience or do live in places where home repairs are not necessarily quite as uh, accessible or available or affordable, uh, and we're not seeing uh, neighborhoods with the great attention of an HOA, and so if sidewalks are not necessarily quite as safe to walk along, um, or not as, as stable or even level terrain, then those individuals certainly are at increased, we do see increased risks of falls, or increased falls in general, in those communities, and also um, people who just have that lower perceived sense of safety, um, in their neighborhoods, whether that has to do with just um, the the activity around their neighborhood, or whether or not it has to do with the um, the, ex the the sidewalks or the the streets themselves, uh, those individuals with that lower sense of safety are one and a half times more likely to to fall than those who do have that greater sense of safety related to their environment. Mm -hmm. Just wanted to share that. And I, I don't know if they still do it or not, but when I I used to teach at Ohio State, did you know that, Dr. Jacket? I, uh, I think I'm familiar. So yeah. I used to have. Yeah. And one of the one of the community courses, I would have students. Um, they would have to take the public transportation down to the paratransit location, where they have this beautifully 
designed assessment center to to assess people in terms of their ability to do um, regular transportation, fixed route transportation versus paratransit. And it was really eye-opening for our students who certainly would use the, the bus system around the university um, that Ohio State provides, but even for them to go from their, their house to, you know, to have to do a couple of transfers on public transportation to see how difficult that could be for some folks in terms of, you know, being able to cross a, a busy street safely, um, kind of how unkept many of the sidewalks are um, because they don't have an HOA. Um, I'm sorry if I took a shot at, an, at anyone that might be affiliated with a homeowners association. It's just my particular one may not have their eyes on the prize uh, quite as, as much as they should. I will say that in um, in Columbus, we do have a, a very wonderful initiative, and I know that other communities around the around the country prescribe to this initiative as well, which is the Age Friendly Initiative. Um, and so there have been some really great efforts, some nice progress being made in the space of community mobility and transportation, and looking at um, our uh, transit system, our bus transit system in particular in Columbus, and you know, doing a needs assessment, looking at the accessibility of not just getting on and off the bus, but also being able to, if you're an older adult, how do you locate the bus stop? Is it, um, you know, are those bus stops uh, positioned? Is the environment around those bus stops considered safe as perceived by older adults, accessible as perceived by older adults? And so it's this nice process of really this client-centered process of going straight to stakeholders, in this case, older adult clients, and um, asking them, hey, wh what do you need? What do you perceive to be um, ways in which we can make community transportation more accessible to you? So again, a very client-centered OT approach to, um, to maximizing mobility for these older adults. Great. Um, so can you talk about, we've talked about a lot about the built environment because we're occupational therapists and that's probably where we're most comfortable. Um, but you, can you talk about some of these other social determinants of health and risk factors that uh, they might have uh, related to increased fall risk? Sure, sure. Um, so looking at healthcare access and quality, and I'll bring this up, um, you know, not uh, to belabor the point, because, you know, in some circles, this might be a no-brainer to, to some of us, um, but, you know, our our primary care providers, when we think about the Medicare, like the annual wellness visit that our older adults can have um, uh, reimbursed through Medicare, where fall risk screens are reimbursable, that uh, still, though, as many as 72% of older adults you know, do not report having fallen to their primary care physician. And, you know, there are many reasons for that. That could be because, um, you know, somebody forgot that they fell. Somebody didn't perceive their fall to be a quote-unquote fall because maybe it wasn't something that resulted in injury. Maybe it has to do with the stigma associated with falling, or maybe it has to do with something a little bit more severe, like the concern over um, the fear of being placed or a physician suggesting that someone is placed in some sort of institutionalized center, like a, like a skilled nursing facility. So there are a lot of reasons and a lot of valid reasons why older adults don't report falls to their primary care physician, but that 72% is a, a pretty concerning number, but I think speaks to perhaps our role as occupational therapists to build that rapport with our older adult clients and really review, um, you know, what falls are, why they happen, how they can be prevented, the importance of preventing them, um, 
And uh, in some cases, you know, we might have more frequent contact. In many cases, we have more frequent contact with our patients than, than primary care physicians do. So um, we might be a, a better kind of link to fall prevention resources than primary care physicians in some circles, um, just because that's more of our, our scope of practice. Primary care physicians have a lot on their plates, um, especially, and those that specialize in geriatrics are becoming fewer and further between. So if we can take the burden off of our PCP friends, um, I think that that is, is really critical as, as we mentioned, as the, the aging population grows at an exponential rate. Yeah, I think it's a great access point for us specifically for primary care. I know in terms of some of the outreach that I did in a previous life, um, it was a, a Medicaid primary care practice and then had some Medicare as well. That was the, you know, we talked about our, our whole scope of practice. That was the one thing um, that the, the physician and the the nurse manager of the practice were most interested in and just trying to figure out how to help some of their, their clients with those issues. Yeah. And, you know, I think, uh, you know, stories and, and case examples always help bring things to life. And so um, I'll just, one of the home visits that I did back when I was in full-time clinical practice um, was with, uh, you know, somebody who, who had fallen, ended up needing rehab services and so upon discharge you know did the home assessment and you know they made a comment they, they said you know I, I've never really needed any help getting around my house and um, would demonstrate for us how without a walker previously um, how they would navigate around their home around their kitchen get it going up and down stairs and and you know they did a lot of what we might call furniture walking, a lot of relying on uh, the the back of a chair, the back of a couch, countertops, um, you know, door handles. You could tell that there were certain door handles that uh, were used as somewhat of a grab bar when somebody was trying to transition, you know, from up one stair to down to another stair. And so those door handles were hanging on by a thread. Um, and, you know, it's, it's not the fault of this older adult client to say that they didn't realize that they were at risk for falling or that they had a mobility impairment. It's our job as, as therapists to perhaps uh, bring that to their attention in a way that is, um, you know, compassionate and empathetic because this is not, this is our job to um, bring out those observational skills and relay that information in a way that is, um, that is not uh, condescending sure. to our older adults. Absolutely. Um, can you give some examples of, uh, certain populations who may be more susceptible to poor fall-related outcomes because of these um, uh, different factors? Certainly, certainly. And that's where I think that, you know, these social determinants of health um, are, are so important because um, we think about not just falls, but the the devastating impact of falls and how they uh, can totally derail someone's independence and quality of life. We do see certain populations that are at greater risk of health disparities. And so again, not just the falls, but the, the uh, I don't use this term lightly, the catastrophic consequences of falls um, be, because you know an injury can lead to then disability that can lead to decreased independence, that can lead to hospitalizations as well as nursing home placements. And so um, one population that I've grown um, very aware of the needs of is the low income older adult population who still resides at home, but are so close to needing more skilled institutionalized services um, and have done uh, the majority of my fall prevention work has been in collaboration with the local home and community-based service provider in Columbus, Ohio, their name, the Life Care Alliance is, is the name of their ag the agency. Um, and they are one of the largest Meals on Wheels providers in the country. Um, and so it, 
that group in particular is a group that I've just learned a lot about their needs, uh, a lot about their unmet needs when it comes to fall prevention and have plenty of stories of, of why the needs are so great and how these social determinants of health are increasing the, um, the likelihood that this population is going to experience some of these health disparities that pertain to to falls. And so naturally, as promised, bringing it back to that statistic about people who are malnourished are eight times more likely to experience a fall. Um, this Meals on Wheels population is a group that historically has a hard time, by nature of Meals on Wheels, accessing healthy food in a reliable manner, um, typically a group that is of lower income status. And um, I think the uh, racial and ethnic breakdown is about uh, f over 40% um, minority population, at least in in this uh, the community that, that my partner agency serves here in the greater uh, central Ohio region. So it's a, it's a group of a lot of unmet needs, but um, many of those unmet needs I'm, I'm trying to look at with this fall prevention lens. Gotcha. So what kind of interventions uh, are you looking to provide for this group, or um, what are the types of things they might need? Sure, sure. So I guess I is it all right if I give a little bit more background about the, the Meals on Wheels population? That would be awesome. Thanks. Okay. Um, because I think that every time, and, and perhaps this says that I need to do a better job about explaining the, uh, the importance of this population to people that actually want to listen to it. So with this captive audience, I will try to practice here. <laughs> um, but the, the Meals on Wheels population uh, is a group that... Um, Meals on Wheels are delivered to about 2.4 million older adults every year. Um, and the main federal funding source for Meals on Wheels or for home-delivered meals, as you might hear them referred to as, is the Older Americans Act. So it's federal legislation, federal dollars uh, that get appropriated to, to pay for these meals that are supposed to meet one-third of older adults' um, nutritional requirements, uh, daily nutritional requirements. So this is a population that um, slight majority is, is female, this home-delivered meal population. The average age is about 74, 75 years old. Um, uh, about half live in urban environments with the others scattered across more rural uh, and suburban environments. About 58% of these uh, Meals on Wheels recipients live alone and have about six to seven on average um, health conditions. So as we, as we know from prior literature, as the number of our comorbidities increase, our likelihood of falling increases as well. And uh, this is a group that Annually, as I said before, the general older adult population, we see falls at a rate of about 25-30%. Um, with the Meals on Wheels population, uh, a paper came out in 2019 that estimated that that proportion of falls was about closer to, to 41 or 42%. And so there's a definitely a greater need. Um, much higher population, um, or sorry, much greater proportion of these individuals are using things like assistive devices, so your, your canes, your walkers, your wheelchairs, a group with um, higher proportion of, of visual impairments, arthritis, stroke, so several conditions that place folks uh, at, a, at a risk for falling. So do, do some of these programs provide sort of follow along medical types of services or right so that's where um i mean that's where the, the disconnect is and i i'd love if listeners have strategies to help with this this disconnect or this fragmentation so to speak where we've got these home delivered meals these meals on wheels services that are provided which i would consider the social worker in me would consider that to be more of the the social service that's being provided um funded through government dollars um Whereas we've got occupational therapists, many of uh, occupational therapy practitioners, many of whom um, work in um, 
you know, more of the traditional or more formalized healthcare system. Um, but social service systems and healthcare systems don't always do the greatest job of, of talking to one another. Um, and in the, so, in the United States, particularly. In the yes, in the United States, and that's where we could learn a lot from our um, international uh, colleagues, um, and we we should learn a lot from them because. And along this line of, of fragmentation, they're doing it better than we are. So um, I, I think that if there is a way to streamline communication and, you know, get into the, the weeds of data sharing and understanding, you know, okay, if, if somebody is being discharged to the hospital, then that should lead to a very clear referral to some sort of um, uh, agency that's able to support the maybe non-essential health needs of an older adult, such as Meals on Wheels, such as, um, you know, DME provision in the cases that DME is not being provided or not being um, paid for through uh, through insurance dollars, um, general health and wellness checks that can also be provided by Meals on Wheels providers uh, and deliverers. So there are a lot of added benefits to the Meals on Wheels programs that at least to be assessed for the need for home modifications would be great too. It sounds like a phenomenal grant opportunity, doesn't it? Or a great place a great place for. Um, occupational therapy students or either as part of field work or capstones or um, seems like a natural fit for us. I think that that is where, you know, um, Dr. Cleary, you were the first one that introduced me to um, this emerging area, practice area of having OTs kind of embedded within the primary care clinics. And I do think that there potentially could be a great well, I know that there's a great opportunity, just a matter of how we actually get it funded, to have a reimbursed um, to have OTs embedded within community-based organizations, such as agencies that that provide services, such as um, you know personal care assistance, home delivered meals, um, home repairs that are not funded through um, through other sources. So, as you said, some of our international partners actually have good evidence that we just need to get outside of our own uh, American box that we oftentimes spend a lot of our time in. Yes, as the egocentric folks that we are. Ethnocentric, not egocentric. Well, perhaps both, egocentric and ethnocentric. Okay, that's. I think you're right. Um, so in terms of the types of, of things that, so this is a population that obviously has some um, various types of needs. Um, what are the types of things that we can do as occupational therapists to, to help improve um, sort of outcomes for them and quality of life for them, uh, potentially? Sure, sure. Um, and so I, I think that this kind of gets at the the big take-home point. Like I can rattle off statistics and proportions, um, you know, till till I'm blue in the face, until everyone's asleep listening to this podcast uh, about the proportion of older adults at risk for falling with different risk factors in mind. But but really, the the take-home message here is that. Um, you know, sure, somebody scores, it takes them 20 seconds to complete the tug, and they're at risk for falls. Um, sure, that's great to have documented, but uh, I'd like to think as occupational therapists, we're, we have such unique skills, occupational therapy practitioners in general have such unique skills for being able to evaluate more than just the individual level factors that influences uh, the occupational performance of our clients. Um, and so, you know, taking a step back and looking at at the at the built environment, and that includes the neighborhood as well as the the actual structures that people are living in or get discharged to. Um, like those are critically important. Thinking about what other members of the care team could be critical in ensuring that these uh, other risk factors, things like nutrition, things like medication management, that those risk risk factors are addressed by um, the appropriate disciplines. Because we as OTs, we can't do it all. I'd like to think that we can, but um, we shouldn't we do, do it all. We can do most. We can do most. We but can do much. All. That's right. Right. 
right? Um, so collaborating with our interdisciplinary partners um, and, and identifying what those resources, so resource identification is great, but actually connecting an older adult to a resource, um, that, that's a, a, another bag of worms that, uh, or another can of worms, I don't know if I've ever held a bag of worms or a can of worms now that I say that out loud. It's a carton, but, um, usually it's a, a carton of worms, often. Carton of worms. Um, but it, it's really resource use that I think is more important than resource identification. So um, I think that that this, these low lower income groups of older adults who are at risk of food insecurity and at risk of malnutrition, um, you know, there are very quick and easy food insecurity screens that maybe your case management partners or your social worker partners already implement um, with with clients who are getting ready to discharge back into the community. And if not, maybe that's something that you as an OT can advocate for. If not, maybe just implement a, a simple two-question food insecurity screen that you can quickly Google. There's a validated two-question item um, that I can, I'm sure I can develop and, and throw in the resource guide for your listeners here. But um, that's also a great way just to kind of think outside the box and think about those risk factors that do place somewhat at increased um, likelihood for falling. Gotcha. Um, so I, I guess we haven't talked about it maybe, but I would imagine the this population has a high percentage of folks with disability, correct? So people that have survived strokes that maybe have an intellectual or developmental disability. Um, I don't know if there's particular evidence about that or, or what your thoughts are about that. Sure. So, um, you know, when I think back to, first of all, you are, you are correct. Um, the, the true numbers, I, I can't rattle off for you right now, but it is the vast majority of Meals on Wheels clients who are receiving these meals to help keep them in their home and delay or prevent the need for more advanced and costly care. Um, it is the minority of Meals on Wheels recipients who maybe are just recently discharged from the hospital and just need like a, a couple months of meals before they're back on their quote unquote feet. Um, uh, so it, the majority are those who require those meals on a more routine, ongoing basis because they're living with chronic conditions and perhaps chronic food insecurity. Um, and so, uh, so to that point, you're you're absolutely uh, correct. And um, in terms of the evidence, I mean, just broadly speaking, we know that those those individuals with more chronic conditions and who do have that that history of disability are just more susceptible to health decline in general. But it is services like these these home and community based services, community based organizations that can help keep older adults in their homes, where upwards of eighty five percent, if not ninety percent, of older adults prefer to age. Um, and as I mentioned maybe when we first started this that I, I, I do feel passionately that older adults deserve to age with dignity in the homes and communities of their choosing. And so it, it really is those non um, non medical services that that have such a critical role in, in providing that ability for older adults to remain independent in the community, but don't perhaps get the glory the same glory that our more traditional formalized healthcare system does get. Gotcha. Um, so just the, could you talk a little bit about the relationship maybe between, is it always a volunteer? Is it a paid person that's delivering the meals? Do they, um, do they have some training in terms of identifying potential risk factors, that sort of thing? Or is it really just kind of a, uh, a five minute, here's your meal, hope everything's okay sort of relationship? And so that's much of the work that we're trying to do here that, um, uh, you know, has been, as you mentioned, the focus of one of our uh, grant funded initi initiatives with um, that partner group that I mentioned in, in Columbus Life Care Alliance, um, where we have uh, implemented more of what I'm going to call it, in, not a training, but an upskilling 
um, of, of staff who are responsible for conducting initial assessments to older adults who call interested in enrolling in Meals on Wheels. And so um, as part of this um, assessment, these, these staff who are paid um, evaluate areas such as you know fall risk history, health history, social history, nutrition risk, uh, ADL function, IADL function. And so we're trying to identify what is the most kind of effective approach to, and sure we can call it training, but the most effective approach to to providing these um, community health workers, social workers um, with the, the skills to be able to identify older adults at risk for falling. Um, and then more importantly, because identification is just one, one part of the game, when you do identify somebody at risk for falling, then what do you do? What are those follow-up resources? What is that follow-up decision tree um, that you follow in order to make sure that somebody is connected to the right home um, and or community-based fall prevention service? And that that is where things get tricky, and I don't have a good answer for that, but um, that is where I think that having an embedded OT clinician within something like a community-based organization would be really helpful um, there are a lot of uh, agencies out there, community-based agencies, that can provide things like uh, canes, walkers, other sources of, of durable medical equipment. But unless that equipment is is fit to somebody's actual, um, you know, house, body proportions, what have you, uh, if, if it's not fit correctly and if it isn't accompanied by proper training, then that itself can pose an additional fall risk. So um, there, there's definitely a need for an OT, OTs in general to be part of these community-based organizations. Um, and some are, but um, we, it'd be great to see even more of those OTs uh, more, more purposefully integrated. Yeah, and have, have you had capstone students that have expressed interest in that? I just would think with the nature of our of our student population that tend to be really um, passionate about the social justice aspect of, of what some of our um, our practitioners are doing. Yes, uh, and so we're absolutely starting that. Um, I've got three new capstone students um, uh, starting the summer with me that are specifically interested in falls in the community-based setting. And so we'll be excited to see what they learn, what they're able to uh, implement in their own respective capstone sites, um, you know, that are these, these are great projects, great opportunities to not just identify the need for an OT in these different settings, but also identify what specifically, what is that distinct value that OT can bring to these, these organizations that perhaps have not historically had an OT on staff. And um, the other thing is, so if you're, you know, working in a nursing home or you're in a acute care uh, setting or a inpatient rehab or even an outpatient setting, I guess where else do we work? That's pretty much all of them. No, we have other... Home health, uh, other things, schools, we do it all. But so you're assessing a, a client and what are the types of things that you might see that you would say, this might be a good candidate for someone that um, should have access to Meals on Wheels or, you know, maybe what are the types of, of situations you might see that would, would lead you to make a referral like that? Yeah. And so that's where I'd collaborate with, um, you know, our case management and social work colleagues to see what questions because even when I worked in inpatient rehabilitation for the majority of my the first part of my career um, I couldn't tell you what all our, our social workers would ask of of patients when they first got to the hospital and when they were discharged um, and you know that that perhaps even though I think that Ohio State we did a great job of collaborating across disciplines um, 
I could certainly have learned more about what each discipline asked of, of patients, especially when it came time to discharge. And so I think that's a nice place to start. You know, we don't know what we don't know. And so we don't want to duplicate efforts. Patients get asked a lot of questions by a lot of different people um, all, all the time. And uh, it, I think that that is a That might you know, be a great sense. topic for a team meeting to, to address that food insecurity specifically uh, to 100%. have everybody on the same page. 100% because uh, dietitians come into play with that as well, as well as speech language pathologists when we think about, um, you know, swallowing difficulties and the safety around around swallowing different textures and, and liquids. So gotcha. starting with so, the team. So um, we have just a couple, it's, it's all about the team and there is no, there's no, OT, there's no I in team, but there is an OT in the team and a good team anyway. So, um, but could you, uh, we're, we're kind of wrapping up here. So um, any last-minute takeaways uh, related to, um, you know, falls related to food insecurity or other um, issues around um, uh, falling, the social determinants of health? Sure, sure. Um, so I think that, that certainly just thinking outside the box, thinking outside of just the individual level um, risk factors and thinking about more um, access to care, thinking about the built environment, thinking about um, other resources that are available to older adults as they as they ideally discharge back into the community. I'm not talking necessarily about our residential um, older adults that might live in assisted living facilities or skilled nursing facilities, but um, thinking of out, outside the box and broadening our assessment procedures so that we're touching upon these social determinants of health, I think is just great for the profession in general, not just for fall prevention, older adults, but for all different uh, client populations that we see. But Really, at the at the end of the day, um, you know, the, the most effective fall prevention programs are those that really do take those client-centered goals into consideration. And so, um, instead of us making goals for our patients about fall-related outcomes, just having those those goals in mind and, and set in stone. Um, I shouldn't say set in stone, but having those goals in place that are reflective of the the um, meaningful goals of our clients. I think that that's what the capable program has taught us. Um, and so if, if we can do that, which is, I know what we do every day, but um, that seems to make more of a, a lasting impact as opposed to us barging in and telling our patients what, what fall related goals they need to achieve. Yeah, absolutely. I know my, my own mother-in-law is 78 years old and is, um, has some uh, issues with her feet and some, some issues with balance, certainly. And I, I know, um, a phrase that I used with her starting about three or four years ago was um, risk reduction, <laughs> and so that's a word. That's so that's a phrase that she uses and and helps her, I think, in so, in terms of some of the the decisions she makes or or, or chooses not to make, um, and something that then she's actually shared with a lot of her friends, and so they, <laughs> it's kind of a common theme now they use uh, among themselves. I like that, and I mean sometimes the word falls, depending, and this is why you have to know your patient and your clients well. Um, the word fall is not well received. And so you say fall to somebody and they'll shut down immediately. So it really does, it, it's an it's a art and a science bringing up the um, fall prevention at large. Be, because they, it's, they are their choices, right? They're not our choices. And that is hard sometimes for young therapists to, to realize. But once we've become a little more seasoned, like myself and like you will be someday, uh, Dr. Jucket, you know, you, you realize that it's, it's not about them, it's about us. So... I'm sorry, it's not about us, it's about them. <laughs> so um, Dr. Lisa Juckett from The Ohio State University, thank you so much for uh, your expertise, both in, in falls prevention and uh, helping uh, our 
uh, folks understand social determinants of health uh, in a better way. My pleasure. Thanks for having me.